All right, welcome back, guys, for y'all who are returning for week two. Um, y'all can just come on in, settle in. We'll have snacks that y'all walked by if you get hangry or uh, need something to sip on in the middle of uh, this time. That's not going to throw me off or hopefully not disturb anybody else if y'all need to get up. Go to the restroom, grab a snack, do what you do. Uh, my name is Daniel Crawford, and uh, I serve with the college team here at Watermark. So I live down near SMU and, and work with students down there. And so I, I've been in Watermark's residency program over the past six, seven months or so, which we're about to finish up. But Blake Holmes, who was with us last week, who's the equipping director, who runs the residency program, he, he's been drilling this stuff into us here for the, the last half year or so. So um, he is celebrating 20 years of marriage with his wife. Uh, so we let, him, we let him off the hook this week for an understandable little vacation break. Uh, so I'm here filling in the gaps a little bit. So um, let me pray for us and we'll open up our time. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks, God, that you um, compiled your truths, compiled your story of redemption from the very beginning. Um, all the way through the culmination of everything in Jesus. Uh, thanks that we have that in a leather-bound book, in a language that we can understand. Uh, God, I just pray that more so each week that we would have uh, a hunger for your word. And God, I, my prayer for this time and for this class and in, the, in, in these four, five, six weeks, however long we're together, is just that as we have a greater grasp and understanding of the story of Scripture, of your redemptive work, uh, that it would just give her a greater appreciation and, and give us a greater uh, desire to know you and, and a desire to be in your word, uh, that it doesn't have to be intimidating, that it doesn't have to be confusing. So use this time tonight, God, as we pick up on, on part two and, and truck through the story of the Israelites in the Old Testament. I uh, pray that you would uh, speak through me in this time and, and that it would make sense and that it would be clear and uh, that it would be fruitful for my friends in this room. So we love you and we trust you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, pop quiz. Starting with a little review. All right, first question, how many books? Let's do this kind of privately on your page. You, you can write it down or just think of it in your head. But let's go through these. And, and this is kind of a crash course, real broad refresher of, of, of what Blake did last week with the first four books, five books of the Bible. Uh, so look through those. If you didn't get a chance to grab some slides at the door, they're in a packet with you, or a packet for you. Give you about 30 seconds on this slide. Okay, how many books? First, how many books are in the Bible? 66. Of those 66 books, how many of those fall into the Old Testament? 39. What was the cheeky little way that Blake told you to remember that? Do you remember? Right, there's three letters in old, the word old, which there's also three letters in the word new, but never mind that. Old Testament, right? Three, Testament, there's nine letters in Testament, okay? So that's, that's one way to stick it in your mind. The other 27 are in the New Testament. Story of Abraham, where's that? Genesis, right? He's God's man from the beginning, the first guy that he intervenes and talks to and says, I'm going to make a people for myself, starting with you, brother. All right, what three things did God promise Abraham? Anybody remember those? There was a land, descendants or children or seed. Any of those kind of mean the same thing. Uh, he, he would tell us, Blake told us seed. So that's how I have it remembered in my, my head is land, seed, and blessing, right? 
So those are the three components, or land, descendants, blessing. Uh, what are the names of the four patriarch? The first was Abraham. So the next three generations following him, y'all got that? Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There you go. And Joseph's, Jacob's name was changed to what? And that's what they still are known as today, right? Jacob becomes Israel. The nation of Israel. How, who led the Hebrew, the Hebrew people out of Egypt? Moses, of course. And what were the names of the two spies who demonstrated faith after spying out the promised land? Joshua and Caleb. Very good. Okay, so they sent 12 people to go spy it out, one from each tribe. After Jacob became Israel, he had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Each sent a representative. Ten of them came back shaken. Two came back confident. So those two who had faith were Joshua and Caleb. Okay, so the structure of the Old Testament, the way that this is put together, this was, I I did not know this until six months ago, that I assumed that if you opened up the Old Testament, you start in Genesis and you read it all the way till the end and it's kind of like a 39 chapter book. And that is not true. That is actually, there's three main genres that make up the Old Testament. There's historical books. Okay, so these are the first category, the historical books, which are only 17 of those 39. But even less than that, of the 17 historical books, really 11 of them tell you the full story from front to back. So the chronological telling of the story of God's people in the Old Testament is really just those names that are in, uh, in yellow. And the white ones, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Ruth, the Chronicles, and Esther, those are there. They're also history, but really they're just kind of reinforcers for those 11, what we call primary historical books. So the story of the Old Testament, which is what we're taking these first three weeks to walk through, it's not 39 books. It's really just 11. And the other 28 reinforce what's going on in the story of those 11 primary books. Okay, poetry. There's five books that are poetical. Again, those don't push the, the, uh, those don't push the story forward. Those don't push... Um, the Old Testament narrative forward, but they shed light upon what is happening in those historical books. And then finally, prophets. And Blake's going to talk all about the prophets next week. And there's a lot going on with the prophets. I feel like we think about prophecy as like fortune telling, like predicting the future. And there's certainly an element of that, of God giving people um, a word of what is coming. But really more than foretelling those prophets had more of a role of, of foretelling, which is essentially, uh, you know, hey, repent, turn back. If we keep doing what we're doing, we're not going to like what we get. Okay, so it's almost like if you, uh, if you think of when you're driving down a road and there's that do not enter, like wrong way, don't pull in here. That's really the primary role of the prophets as much as it is to predict the future. So y'all will get all that next week. Uh, but there were 17 prophets. So it kind of makes a little Old Testament sandwich there. You got 17, 5, and 17. And that's history, poetry, and prophecy. When you blend all those together, what he tried to do on these three slides, and they, they kind of get chopped up. So what I did is on these first two slides, I kind of wrote them up here on this blackboard, whiteboard, 
which may or may not do you any good if you can't see it that clearly. Uh, But we had talked about that of those 11 primary historical books, let's just walk through what they are up here. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Joshua. It shows you how Leviticus and Deuteronomy, Leviticus is just a reinforcer for the book of Exodus. Deuteronomy, just a reinforcer for what has happened up to the point in Israel's history with Numbers. Job, they say, might actually be the oldest book. Okay, so that actually would chronologically fall in the time of Genesis, of course. And then pushing through, and this is the heart of where we're going to be living today. Okay, so Judges, and then First and Second Samuel. Ruth is this little glimmer of hope in the middle of the really dark times that we'll look at in the times of the Judges. And then Second Samuel is where we're going to highlight King David, who's obviously this really famous figure that we're all familiar with. And he's the primary guy who was writing all those Psalms. So Psalms and First Chronicles, they come later in your Old Testament, but really you can stick them in there in your brain. You can kind of stick them in that same folder as Second Samuel. And then finally, I think, click of problems. Oh, there it went. I just needed to be patient with it. Okay, and this is where y'all going to finish out next week with Blake. Okay, we're going to end with the Samuels today, and he's going to pick up next week with the kings, talk about the exile, and then talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, which close out the Old Testament. And all those books, all those prophets, okay, there's 17 of them, but they, none of them are coming and none of them are talking until Second Kings and later. So of those 17, 12 of them are actually during Second Kings. And then there's two that were during the exile, three that came after the exile. So that's one way to look at it, is to look at it book by book. And where we're focusing today is on the first seven books. And coincidentally, those seven books match up with the first seven uh, periods of the Old Testament. Okay, so yes, I am going to make you do it. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Blake would shame me if I didn't. Okay, so kinda, to kind of help to be a little interactive, to get some blood flowing, and to remember these 10 periods of the Old Testament that by the end of next week, you will all be masters of. Okay, so last week we got through the first four, which was creation. Who remembers the sign for creation? This beautiful little sun salutation, right? Any yogis in here? All right, patriarchs. So when you think patriarch, you think wisdom incarnate, right? You think of these old, bearded, wise men that want you to come sit on their knee and tell you a story. So you have creation and you have the patriarchs. Both of those periods take place during the one book of Genesis. Okay, so there's your first two periods. Both are in the book of Genesis is where that laps in your Bible. Exodus, pretty straightforward. The Exodus happens in Exodus. Anybody remember the sign for Exodus? We're marching out of there. Get me out of Dodge. I ain't enjoying Egypt no more. Moses, lead the way. Okay, so they get done with the Exodus. And then we have our 10 out of 12 spies that can't get the job done. So the 40 days that they went to spy out the promised land, they got 40 years, ouch, to wander in the wilderness. And if I'm wandering, I'm just like, I don't know where I'm going. So a wander is a good 360 degree turn. I get dizzy sometimes when I spin. So in Blake's class, pretty much all year, I would do a half a spin and then I would turn back. 
So I'm like, technically I did 360 degrees. So we're just, but we have creation, we have the patriarchs, we got the exodus, and then we got wanderings. Okay, so that is where we got through last week. Today, we're hitting on three Old Testament periods. All right, we're starting out, we're going to get up our dukes with the conquest. Okay, so we suffered our 40 years of punishment of wandering in the wilderness. Now it's time to march proudly back in and seize that land that God promised to us. So there's the conquest, and then we've got the judges, all right, which just to work with our minds, judge, think of like a gavel. Judges, were, they're nothing like the judges with the robes and in the courtroom. They're very different. They're uh, a lot more like Maximus or some of those type of figures. But we got the conquest, then we got judges, and then we got put your crowns on, kingdom. Okay, so that's what we're getting through today. We'll be those seven. Next week, y'all put the icing on the cake. You're going to do the exile, which was you got your hands behind your back because you got kicked out and you're having to march uh, out of the promised land yet again. Then you got return, celebrate good times, come on. And then you got silence, 400 years where there is no recorded scripture until Matthew hits the scene. John the Baptist, rather, as recorded in Matthew, and it breaks the silence, and God speaks again through John the Baptist after 400 years of silence. Okay, so let's go all the way through one more time. So we got creation. We got patriarchs. We got the exodus. We're marching out. And now we're wandering in the wilderness. And then we got the conquest. Let's get it back. We got judges. We got the kingdom. Exile. Return. Silence. All right. Fantastic. Y'all have a seat. Great job. Thanks for playing along and humoring me. Okay, so super quick review of those three books of the Bible, the four periods that are covered in three books of the Bible that were last week, Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers. Okay, which along with Leviticus and Deuteronomy which Leviticus and Deuteronomy, as we've seen, they don't push the plot forward. They're just reinforcers. So Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers are the narrative that make up that Pentateuch, which is that weird word, which the root of it means five. It's the first five books of the Bible. Okay, so in Genesis, this was the short outline and the key word. The key word for Genesis is beginnings, which should be easy to remember. It's the first book in the Bible. It's where it all started. Okay, and so there's a short outline, which is super helpful to remember because you got 50 chapters in Genesis. It's a long book. The chronological time of Genesis, from Genesis 1 through 50, is actually more years past in that book alone than the entire rest of the Old Testament. So it's hard to condense it, but if you can, if you tried, there's really four events and then there's four main people. And that's where we get our two historical periods from the creation, and then the patriarchs are those four events and those four people. So creation, fall, flood, and tower. You're going to see that in just the first 11 chapters. And then God comes, speaks to Abraham in chapter 12, makes his covenant, and that's passing on through Abraham's lineage, through Isaac, through Jacob, who becomes Israel, and then finally through Joseph, who took us to Egypt, which is one of the coolest stories in the Bible. Blake talked about it last week. We're not going to re-go, go through it again this week. But if you talk about God's provision and God being present and having his hand in things when it seems like he's nowhere to be found, go read Joseph's story. It's incredible. Okay, so by the time Joseph ends 
and Exodus begins, Genesis ends rather. Okay, Exodus, the key word for Exodus is escape. Okay, and that's what we're doing when we're marching, right? We've been trapped here. We've been in bondage and slavery. Uh, the Pharaoh who, who Joseph was so instrumental in helping Egypt, time has passed and people have kind of forgot all about the brother. And now Israel is seen as a threat to the Egyptians rather than citizens. So they're enslaved and they're crushed and they're crippled. And then Moses shows up, okay? And he brings the good word of redemption. So the first part of, of uh, that has 40 chapters in Exodus and you can split it right down the middle, 20, 20. The first 20 chapters, well, 19, close enough. The first 19 chapters talk about the redemption of literally Moses, God through Moses, pulling his people miraculously out of Egypt. And we're familiar with that, with the Pharaoh, with Passover, with the plagues, all of those things. And they march and they're free. And then, excuse me, Revelation. We say Revelation because that is God. The first time God uh, reveals straight, uh, straight to Moses, gives him the Ten Commandments, uh, where we have the character of God as we've never seen it before, and it's recorded. And he gives, uh, he gives the law, the Mosaic law. So if we remember uh, the, the, the law, there was three parts to the Mosaic law. And you see that reference throughout the whole rest of the Old Testament and throughout the Gospels and Paul's letters. It's all talking, they all point to the law, like capital L. It's talking about the Mosaic law that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai here in the back half of the book of Exodus. Okay, so there was three parts to it. There was a moral law, there was civil law, there was ceremonial law. Okay, civil and ceremonial, the two C's, a lot of those have been fulfilled in Christ and are not binding on God's church today the way they were uh, to help direct his people in the Old Testament. The moral law, your 10 commandments and those things, uh, which reveal the heart of God, those are still as relevant to us today as they were to those guys back then. And when you think of the purpose of the law, and I didn't get this until I was like older. Not that I'm super old right now, but older uh, in my walk where I'm kind of like, so the purpose of the law and the purpose of scripture is not, I, I thought it was like, a, this is what you got to do in order to pull off and be a, be a super Christian. And the more of these you can check off and check the boxes, you know, that's, that's where you're, it's almost like God's going to grade me on how I'm doing on those Ten Commandments. You know, do I have a 60, an 80, a 90? I don't know, but I'm trying my best. Uh, and I realized that the, that the law, and Scripture says super clearly in the New Testament, that the law is fulfilled in Christ. That it, was, it is insufficient to save. That our salvation and our standing before God is not based on our performance in keeping with the law of Moses. Okay, it's good. It's helpful. It's holy reveals the heart of God, shows us more of who he is and what his best is for us. But our standing before him has nothing to do with our performance and everything to do with Jesus' today. Okay, so it shows us our sin, right? If nothing else, it says, whoa, the standard is perfection uh, and I am humbly reminded that I am not perfect. So if it is up to my performance, I'm in trouble. Okay, but grace is now the law of the land today, so... Thank the Lord that that's why we can even be here. Okay, and then ending with numbers from last week, the wanderings in the wilderness. Okay, you had the old generation, which was called the Exodus generation because those were the people who got to see all that stuff that marched out with Moses. 
And then there's that tragic transition that we talked about. Joshua and Caleb were faithful. The other 10 did not trust the Lord. There was 40 years to pay for that. So that was a tragic transition, and it cost them 40 years. But then we had this new generation, okay, which is the conquest generation, because those are the guys that are Joshua's age. Those are the kind of the young guns that were up and coming. And those are the people where we pick up today that are going to be the people that Moses marched them up to the edge of the promised land, just like he said he would. Moses was not allowed to go in with the people, which seemed harsh. It is what it is. His next man coming up, his deputy, who becomes the sheriff, the new sheriff in town, is Joshua. The same Joshua who's one of the two faithful spies who spied out the land and said, we could take him. We got God on our side. So that's what we're going to pick up right now is in the fourth book of the, well, the fourth historical, primary historical book of the Bible in the fourth period of Joshua and the conquest. The key word, the buzzword for Joshua is good times, baby. It's success, right? We are in the promised land, the land of milk and honey. For the first time, it's been, it's been a hot 40 years walking around in there, but we now get to pre- uh, walk back in. And so the conquest and the settlement, and it kind of splits in half 12 and 12, where the first 12 talk about the process of crossing over the Jordan River, entering into the promised land under Joshua's leadership, driving out the wicked inhabitants that had taken over that land and redeeming that for God's people, Israel, as he had promised. And then the back half really kind of talk, talks more about how the land is allotted, how it's divided up. You know, this tribe is going to settle here. This tribe's going to settle there. But most of the action happens there in the first 12 chapters. So a little background. The author is said to have been Joshua, uh, except for there's an ending where unless Joshua is writing in the third person and kind of being weird, it's somebody else kind of filled in the gaps and talked about the end of Joshua's life, uh, Phineas was said to be an eyewitness to the events. The purpose is to tell of Israel's conquest and settlement of the promised land under Joshua's leadership. The themes we're going to see are obedience, faith, courage, and rest. And if I was going to condense that into one mega theme of Joshua that is just awesome, is that again and again we're going to see that victory comes through faith in God, obedience to his word, not through military might or numerical superiority. In other words, we see how God required the people to attempt the impossible in submission and in faith to his directions before he made it possible for them to succeed, which resonates with me because I I like to calculate out before I'm going to make a decision, like I want to measure, I want to know it's going to be okay, right? And I want to be analytical. I want to weigh my options, I want to see which option is going to have the best return on investment. I want predictability. I don't want a bunch of risk. But we see time and time again that God is going to ask his people, I'm going to tell you to do this and it's going to sound crazy. And you would never make the decision to do this on your own. It even seems unwise. Right? But sometimes we've got to put ourselves beyond what we know can be expected in order for God to kind of wow us. Right, because there comes a limit of what we can measure, and he's saying, "I want you to aim out here." And the gap, if it gets filled in, you know who filled it in. It ain't you; it's me. So we see that in the book of Joshua very clearly. Okay, so the way I'm going to kind of do these four books that we're walking through tonight is just kind of hit you the high points of some of the narrative. Uh, I'm going to throw some text up there that you can follow along with some key passages. 
and just kind of, it's not going to be exhaustive, but it's going to hit the high points. So it starts off, this is the first thing written in Joshua. This is when God commissions Joshua, and essentially this is the torch passing ceremony. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. He said, now that my servant Moses is dead, you must lead my people across the Jordan River into the land I am giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Everywhere you go, you will be on land I have given you. So there's no doubt after Exodus and Numbers that the Lord was with Moses. The Lord is now saying, as I was with Moses, I'm with you as well. So feel good about that. From the Negev Desert to the south, the Lebanon Mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River to the east, the Mediterranean Sea in the west, and all the land of the Hittites which just as I'm tempted to treat the Bible like Harry Potter, like it's taking place on Middle Earth or something like that, it's like this is geography in the world that you can go see today. Like this is Earth. These were people that lived. Uh, Verse 5, No one will be able to stand their ground against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail or abandon you. And here we go. Be strong and courageous, for you will lead my people to possess all the land I swore to give their ancestors. Be strong and very courageous. Obey all the laws Moses gave you. Don't turn away from them. You will be successful in everything you do. Faith, obedience, strength, courage. That is what he asks of us, and he's going to take care of the results. Okay, one of the best, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Joshua 1, 8, as it pertains to what we're doing right now. Study this book of the law, these scriptures. Study this book of the law continually. Meditate on it day and night so you may be sure to obey all that is written in it. Only then will you succeed. And just the importance from the very beginning of knowing God's word and trusting in it, meditating on it. Uh, There's no shortcuts, right? We got to know God's word and spend time in it if we're going to grow in our faith. I command you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So that is Joshua's commission. That is the passing of the torch. Okay, and then the second chapter, we've got a cool little story about a woman named Rahab, who as uh, the Israelites are going about from town to town, and God is, is guiding their conquests, and they're getting the land back, from these wicked inhabitants who have filled it and corrupted that land. Um, They come across a land called Jericho, okay, a city called Jericho. And it's a famous story you're probably familiar with, where God's instructions, as I talk about the ridiculousness, God's instructions that way were, I want you to take seven laps around Jericho, and that's how you're going to defeat them. And after the seventh lap, I want you to all scream and blow these horns and make a bunch of noise. And if I'm an Israelite, I'm like, I mean, are we going to, I don't see that as intimidating and I don't, I'm not sure about this plan, but he asked him to do that. And so before he does that, he has a couple people very similarly to what he did during the wanderings, kind of send some people in there, scout out what's going on in the village. He sends in two people, two or three guys, and they're met by this woman. And this woman intervenes and says, hey, her name's Rahab. I know the Lord has given you this land, she told them. We're all afraid of you. Everyone is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. We know what you did to Sihon and Og, the two Amorite kings of the east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts are melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God 
is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. Okay, so that is her profession of faith. Hey, I've heard of this God, right? The word is out of this whole Exodus deal and what you're doing and what he's doing through you guys. I believe, like I believe this God is who he says he is and I believe we are powerless uh, to resist him. And if his will is to take this town, I believe that's exactly what he's gonna do. And so I'm scared for my life. I'm scared for my family. So what she does is she hides these spies. And it is, if you read the whole passage, it is very, it's almost like the like Anne Frank type of deal with Corey Ten Boom. It really is. It's like, I'm gonna hide you here. And these people are like, we heard they're here. Where are they? We can't let them threaten our town. We give them to us. Where are they? And she hides them and she lies for them to protect them. And then she comes back and, and finds the guys later, hides them on the roof, says, escape to the hill country. Hide for three days until the men who are searching for you have returned, then go on your way. Before they left, the men told her, we can guarantee your safety, but only if you leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window and all your family members, your father, mother, brothers, and all your relatives must be here inside the house. So what is she supposed to hang out of her window? Why do you think they bothered to say that specific with the color? Does that ring a bell with anybody? It's color blood, right? And not long ago, okay, there was the Passover where God was going to come through and he told everybody. He told Moses to tell the Israelites. He told Moses to tell the Pharaoh, to tell the Egyptians that I'm coming. And the firstborn son, there will be death. There will be destruction. There will be grief. There will be mourning. Right? My wrath is coming. Unless... You take some blood and you put it over your doorposts. And if I see that blood, I know that you will have sacrificed a lamb and that rather than shedding the blood of the oldest son in that home, the blood of that lamb will suffice. It will be a sacrifice, it will be a substitute, and I will pass over that house. And there will be no death and there will be no destruction. And then here in the conquest, we see this woman putting a scarlet thread out her window And then we see the Lord again with his destructive power uh, and his just wrath coming upon the wicked inhabitants and he passes over the home of Rahab on behalf of that scarlet rope. It's a pretty powerful imagery there. Uh, Rahab had herself a little legacy. Uh, Oh, and this was the result. This is how it ends up playing out in chapter six, four chapters later, the seventh time around. As the priests sounded the long blast of their horns, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and everything in it is completely destroyed in his offering. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be st- spared, for she protected our spies. That was a minor detail I forgot, is that her occupation was not the most honorable of the day. Uh, but nonetheless, that God saw her faith and admired it so uh, that you end up having the legacy of a faithful woman. She's not remembered for the fact that she was a prostitute, and that's how she was making her living. She's remembered as the woman who heard about God, believed in God, protected God's people, and that God spared her life. So this is in Hebrews 11, which is kind of an epic chapter of Scripture that reviews really the whole Old Testament. And this is where it's cool, where the Old Testament connects to the New, because Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's a letter um, that some people think was a sermon. But if you don't know your Old Testament and the story, you can read Hebrews, but it's going straight over your head. 
right? The Old Testament is the New Testament. It is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is just the Old Testament revealed. It's all one book. There's all one theme. It's all Jesus. So in Hebrews 11, which they nicknamed the Hall of Faith, and it kind of walks through the heroes of the faith, through which, whose names you will all have heard over these first three weeks talking through the Old Testament. Uh, lo and behold, verses 30 and 31. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho seven days and the walls came crashing down. So the Israelites showed great faith to do that, even if they felt ridiculous. And verse 31, it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute did not die with all the others in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So Rahab, a Gentile woman, not an Israelite, not an honorable lifestyle, her faith is documented in the book of Hebrews with the big dogs of the faith. Okay, also in Matthew 1, which Blake said uh, last week, that uh, if you open up Matthew 1, it's almost funny because you look at the first page and the first like 25 verses are a a big long genealogy. And then it picks up and it's like, yeah, I'm going to kind of skim all those names and pick it right up where the action is. Uh, But right there, I mean, early. Verse 1, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Y'all could fill in the gaps there. Jacob was the father of who? Joseph, nice. And it goes on down. Okay, verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz. His mother was, ding, 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 Rahab. Rahab, this woman, the same woman, is in Jesus' genealogy, which is also King David's genealogy. Boaz was the father of Obed. His mother was Ruth, who has a book named after her. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. So it's just cool to see with Rahab and with Ruth, who were not uh, nationality-wise. They were not Israelites. They were not God's chosen people of the Old Testament. But nonetheless, as ancestors to David and to Jesus, you can already see from the beginning that God had a master plan, right? And that's the blessing part of that Abrahamic covenant, that I will bless the world through you. And where even in that time, he had a plan uh, for the world, that he loves everybody, and you can see uh, that it is not limited to the nationality, the, the Hebrew-Jewish nationality. So to cap off the conquest and the settlement, as the Lord had commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did, as was told, carefully obeying all the Lord's instructions to Moses. So Joshua took control of the entire land just as the Lord had instructed Moses. He gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes, so the land finally had rest from war. So he was faithful, he trusted the Lord, and the Lord delivered. And clearly, we see again and again in three straight verses here, the Lord gave to Israel all the land. The Lord gave them rest. The Lord had given Israel, where there was no doubt what happened. There was the, this is your measurable success right here. This is what you probably could have pulled off on your own strength. This is what I asked of you. And the fact that the gap got filled in there, and you are where you are now, you know that it was the Lord, and there was no doubting that. There was no doubting that. So these are Joshua's kind of sign-off words to close this book. Wise man, he said, be caref- very careful to obey all the commands and the law that Moses gave to you. Love the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, obey his commands, be faithful to him, and serve him with all your heart and all your soul. It's kind of a cool little coffee mug verse to sip on some goodness and remember.
And then this you've probably seen hanging in some relative's house somewhere. Uh, so honor the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates rivers in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates River? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whom land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Put a picture frame around that. Hang it in the kitchen. Right? But he, he's saying, he, he's asking them, hey, there's none of this one foot, one out thing. Like where, where are you committed? Like who are you serving? Who are you living to honor? And I need to ask myself that question every week. And a lot of times the answer is sobering of really, if I look at the past seven days, who am I living to serve and who am I living to honor? And Joshua is calling us really clearly uh, that in an unwavering sense that it should be the Lord. Okay. And then here to close out the book of Joshua. Okay. Let the record show the Israelites, as Joshua is saying these things, where are we at, boys? Are we in or are we out? Decide who you're going to serve. Three different times in three different verses, they say, uh, we too will serve the Lord. We're determined to serve the Lord. We will serve the Lord our God. We will obey him alone. So that's their response. And that ends the book that we call success. And we're excited. And we're killing it. And Israel is back in the promised land. The people are pumped up. Uh, Joshua lived a good life, leaves a strong legacy. Everybody's bought in to carry on what he started. So Joshua, the success, it was conquest and it was settlement. Again, that was a short outline. That's a way you can kind of chunk it in your mind. 12 and 12, conquest and settlement. So we end on that high note. And then, oh dear Lord, here comes, <laughs> here comes the book of Judges. So you had a fun book of success and here we have a book of wah, wah, failure. Okay, so right after on the coattails of We Will Serve the Lord, the book of Judges covers 400 years of the most depressing stuff you're likely to read. Um, Anybody watch that show, Sons of Anarchy? This may just have to be a moment of confession, actually, because me and my wife got into that show for a while, and it was like, we'd watch an episode of Sons of Anarchy, which is like the biker gang criminal show. And I'm just like, Ah, oh, I'm like, I'm like depressed right now. And I'm like rooting for these criminals to like, when they do stuff to cops, I'm like rooting for them. I'm like, what is, what is happening right now? I guess we have to watch one more episode. And so I turn in the next episode, of course, and the Netflix rolls on and it continues to be addicting, but it's like this ev- never ending cycle of just depressing, dark stuff. And so uh, if that's not a resounding enough endorsement for you to go read the book of Judges, that is Judges, essentially, again and again and again. Okay, and and the cycle works like this, and it happens seven different times. Is there's this decline where the people are going down, down, down. There's this deliverance where God raises up a judge to kind of come and and save the day and salvage a little bit uh, and keep them afloat. And then they turn right back around, and it's like worse than ever. And so it's, there, there's this decline and then this deliverance and then depravity. And it's like if I drew it on a grid, it's, it's we're moving down and to the right uh, for 400 good old jolly years. So the author, uh, it's anonymous. They say perhaps Samuel recorded that history when he was writing the other two books. 
Uh, but the purpose was that it dis- demonstrates very clearly two things, that Israel from within was very corrupt, uh, that they did not, in fact, decide to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And then oppression from without. Foreign nations, uh, we see when Israel, whenever they waver from the will of God, whenever they start doing whatever they want to do, it does not go well with them. Okay, and God does not, uh, does not protect them. That God, uh, the advantage they have of being God's people, they lose that advantage when they start living the way the rest of the world lives. Uh, and we see that. So, themes, these are just verses, really cheerful verses. Uh, they did not drive out the inhabitants. They did not finish the task. I'll explain more what that means. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That happened like seven different times. It's in the book of Judges that that happens. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, feel a lot of that with the spirit of this age that we're living in right now. You do you. I'll do me. Let's tolerate everything and objective truth. That's kind of what we see in this book, too. Uh, on, in those days, there was no king in Israel. So there was no king. Uh, God was not their king. Nobody wanted to submit to anybody else. Everybody wanted to do what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, how they wanted to do it, which is a lot like the world we live in today and a lot like me before I had a relationship with Jesus. Praise God. All right, Judges. Unique features of these seven cycles of sin. Christ in Judges. Uh, We see that the judges will illustrate the need for a righteous king. There's no doubt by the end of Judges uh, that we're sinners in need of a savior, right? There were three types of judges, a warrior, a priest, and a prophet. And Jesus fulfilled the role of prophet, priest, and king. So it points ahead to him that he's the only one who occupies all those sorts of offices in one perfect God-man. Key chapters, verses, and words that you can read there. Okay, so mission unaccomplished. God delivered. He came through. He held up his end of the bargain. Uh, He was with Joshua. He was successful, led them to be successful in recapturing and reclaiming the promised land. But then he gave them an additional command that it's now up to you guys to kind of finish the task and, and whatever it takes. In verse 128, though, we see when the Israelites grew stronger, this is Judges chapter 1, They forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they did not drive them out of the land. Okay, so didn't happen. The promised land was conquered, but five of the 12 tribes did not finish their task. Then chapter two, verse three. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides. Their gods will become a snare to you. Spiritual amnesia, we suffer from it. The Israelites suffered bad. They had a bad case of spiritual amnesia. So after that generation died, the Joshua generation, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done in Israel. Then the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight and worshiped the images of Baal, B-A-A-L. You see that a lot through the Old Testament. It's kind of an an alternative religion where people would turn and, and worship like pagan idol worship. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They chased after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. So out to the side there with the red and the green, which is not in your packet. Sorry about you. But the Moses generation, okay, that was that when we look at the short outline of numbers. Anybody want some bonus points? Do y'all remember the short outline for numbers? There was an old 
generation, then there was a tragic transition, and then there was a new generation. So those are those first two. The Moses generation was that old generation who were the ones who marched out of Egypt, but who did not have the faith and they had to wander in the wilderness. And the Joshua generation was that conquest success generation where they were following the Lord. Apparently the next generation after Joshua was walking with the Lord and it was this fourth generation uh, where it hit the fan and we get what we get in the book of Judges. All right, so generally a judge, this is what we're talking about. Uh, and you can read that more in detail later if you want, but it, it is God is going to raise up these judges, verse 16. He's going to raise up judges to rescue the Israelites from their enemies. Okay, but we're going to see that cycle where even as people are declining, even when the judge comes to deliver people, then still at the end, verse 19, uh, but when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. So it's just this really depressing cycle, like watching a Sons of Anarchy marathon. So here's, here's an example of a condensed sin cycle. When I say there's seven cycles of sin, uh, this is the first one they mentioned, and it says, once again, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. There's that verse again. So the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel. Okay, so there's five S's that make up a sin cycle. Okay, this is the verse of sin. There's sin, slavery, supplication, salvation, and silence. And so this is what it looks like in this one example. So that's the sin, the decline. Verse 13, together with the Ammonites and the Amalekites, Eglon attacked Israel, took possession of Jericho, and the Israelites were subject to Eglon of Moab for 18 years. So as I said, this book covers 400 years. So there's a lot of time that passes. 18 of those were Israel being oppressed once more because they're not staying in the sweet spot with God's will. They're doing what they want to do, doing what was right in their own eyes. They're enslaved by a foreign nation once again. So sin, slavery, verse 15. But Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Supplication, right? We're going to cry out. We're going to pray for help. And the Lord raised up a man to rescue him like he does when we cry out for help. Uh, he's going to offer salvation to us. That's what he does. He's good. His name was Ehud of the tribe of Benjamin, who was left-handed. Southpaw, in case you were wondering. He was left-handed. Uh, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and the land was at peace for 80 years. So things were restored. Right? The judge, God raises up this judge. Things get back to good, or at least in control, more or less. But then the process is going to repeat itself. We're going to, you're going to see another cycle where there's sin again and there's a decline. Over and over and over again, we ride that carousel. All right, so here's a judge for you. All right, a little 300, a little CGI, uh, washerboard abs, you know, wearing the, you know, briefs, briefs and a cape, making that look work the way King Leonidas did. So Gideon, when you think of a judge, you can think of, uh, and specifically his story, kind of there's some Leonidas in him, right? Gideon was a judge. So we see his story uh, in Judges chapter 7. The Lord said to Gideon, they're gearing up for war. So God has raised up Gideon to go defend Israel in war against the Midianites. Gideon versus Midian. And so they get like, it's some like 30,000 troops or something like that. Like they, they have a decent little army to go put up a fight. And God goes to Gideon in verse two. 
says, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. If I let all you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they saved themselves by their own strength. Same mentality as Joshua. Verse 7, the Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, Leonidas, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. In verses 3, three through 6 there, between those two, he does like this funny little test where it's like, hey, tell all those guys, first of all, tell anybody if they don't feel like fighting, they can go home. So he's like, if you don't feel like fighting, you can go home. And like two-thirds of them go home. It's like, nice, Israel. So the, the, the third that chooses to remain, he says, hey, tell those guys to go walk up to that river and, and they're going to drink in one of two ways. They're either going to kind of hit a knee and like lap it up and drink with their hands, cup with their hands, or they're going to go straight like face to pond and just start drinking from the river. And I forget which one's which, but he's like, the ones that do that, send them home. The ones that do that, keep them. I don't know. That's what he told them to do. And it ended up being that 300 were in that category of keepers. And so that's what he asked. So he says, instead of 30,000, you got 300. But then verse 14, his friend said, God has given Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite, victory over the armies united with Midian. And he's able to say that in verse 14, that God gave them this victory. Because this wasn't us with 30,000 well-trained men. This was, this was 300 dudes. And, and God comes through as he always does. But, chapter 8, you knew it was coming. Verse 33, as soon as Gideon was dead, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal. Again, they forgot the Lord their God who had rescued them from all their enemies surrounding them, nor did they show any loyalty to the family of Gideon despite all the good he had done for Israel. So a judge was a hard job. It's a depressing job. It was also kind of a thankless job. So I'm not sad that that was not my job description. Uh, And then this is the last verse in the book of Judges and it fits. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So again, short outline for the book of Judges. The real uplifting book of Judges. Decline before the Judges. Deliverance through the Judges. Depravity after the Judges. All right. Let's stand up again. Little blood circulation. I was once a seventh grade math teacher. I know that we're not 13 years old in here. But I figured out that doing little breaks halfway through class made things go a lot better. And frankly, I needed it more than the kids needed it. Um, So feel free, you know. You do you. The stretch. I'm like a, I'm a hip guy. I like bending at the hips, getting that lower back, kind of stretched out, throwing an arm across. Do what you got to do. Take a little stretch break. And hey, while we're up, let's go. Ten periods of the Old Testament, all right? We got creation, right? What comes after creation? Keep me going. Okay, and then? Good. Conquest, right? Joshua. And then? Which is where we just left off, right? So what comes next? That's where we're going. We're kicking off the kingdom, baby. Okay, and then after the kingdom, the last three periods are the exile. Woohoo! And then silence. You got it. Y'all are awesome. Have a seat. And before we truck on, um, I'd love to ask if there were like two or three people, I'd love to throw this question out there if, if, if someone wanted to, to chime in. Um, of over the past, you know, week and a half, I guess it has been, 
one and a half sessions. Um, anything that struck you in walking through from kind of that helicopter tour view of the Old Testament? Uh, any realizations that you never thought about or you never knew before? Or any just cool reminders of something that's like, I mean, I was familiar with that, but like I, I'm kind of seeing that there was more to that than um, any realizations or any reminders that two or three people would want to kind of share and encourage everybody with? Awesome. Okay. She didn't realize Rahab was in the same genealogy as Jesus. Yeah, Rahab and then Ruth after her. Those were non-Israelite, not highly regarded women uh, who in God's eyes, it always seems to work differently. We're going to see that in First and Second Samuel right now, is uh, God seems to, to assess people differently than we seem to assess people is what their value is. And absolutely, I mean, our Savior came from the lineage uh, of a woman who was a non-Israelite living in Jericho, uh, who her faith, that's what God wanted. God, God saw her heart and, and enjoyed that. Awesome. Maybe two more? Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. That's great. So the rep- the repetition of if you're going to go crank through, uh, you know, the Samuel's and the Kings, and then you're going to come up to the Chronicles, it's like, am I am I crazy? Did I not just read this? Yes, you did. And it's just uh, it reinforces. You see it from a slightly different angle, but the content and the plot and the information, there's lots of overlap. Um, so I agree. That was one of my big ones. Was it's not 39 books long the narrative. It's 11 books long, and there's 28 that kind of help. Maybe I'm doing the math wrong in my head right there, 26, 27, whatever. It was seventh grade math, people. <laughs> All right, one more person. Have a cool, yeah. Totally. I mean, I had a, a conversation with my brother-in-law this past weekend about that because uh, he's kind of he's kind of a guy who's going to say Old Testament that's that's cool and whatever. I, I don't need that. Like I just I just need Jesus. I need the New Testament. And yeah, as far as practical life application and and more the the contemporary context uh, in our relationship and how we can interact with God is I mean that comes through the Gospels uh, and Paul and those other letter writers give us some great context to that. Uh, but I love it. It stuck in my mind what Blake had said about concealed and revealed. Like the Old Testament is still the New Testament. It's just, it's concealed. And we have the benefit now of being able to look at both books and we can read, uh, you know, stories like Rahab's and we can see where it points to and the symbolism there that they didn't even have that benefit at the time. But man, God is good. He's faithful. The God of the New Testament is the God of the New Testament. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's three in one. Jesus is God. So Jesus was just as much present in the times of the Old Testament as he was when he actually put on flesh and and walked the earth with us for that time period as well. So awesome. Thank you all for sharing. Okay, so two down, two to go. All right, so with our seven books that we will have covered uh, in 30 minutes from now when we leave, well, four books, the first three, was last week with Blake. Y'all walked through the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers, which was your creation, patriarchs, Exodus, and wanderings. Today we did conquest and judges, Joshua 
and judges, success and failure. And so now we're kicking off the kingdom, the monarchy. Okay, so Samuel uh, is where things start. The short outline, go there first. Okay, it's easy. You just think of people. Okay, so there's Samuel, then there's Saul, and then there's Saul and David. And then second, second Samuel is where we're going to end today, and that's all David all the time. Uh, but we see David, his coming out parties in the back half of First Samuel. But first we get to see uh, Samuel, who was allegedly probably the author of this book. Um, it also includes writings from the prophets Nathan and Gad. Uh, the purpose to re- record the life of these men, Samuel was Israel's last judge. So coming off uh, the book of Judges, we're going straight into 1 Samuel. And so it makes sense that Samuel is going to be the last judge and kind of be the bridge towards out of the judges phase and into the kingdom phase. Saul, the first king, and the choice uh, and pre- preparation of David, Israel's greatest king. We see all those things in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, personally, my favorite book in the Old Testament. So I'll put that stamp on it up front. Unique features, the Lord's calling of Samuel, the power of the ark, the ark of the covenant uh, that we refer to in in Exodus that they're carrying around with them that symbolizes the presence of God. Classic story of David uh, David and Goliath, of course, is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Christ in Samuel, Christ is born from David's family. We're going to see the Davidic covenant, uh, which points toward Christ very clearly as a source of messianic hope for God's people. Uh, key chapters, key verses, and words. Y'all can go apply that later if you would like. All right, so kicking things off in chapter 3, 1 Samuel chapter 3. Uh, we said that those first seven chapters deal with, or eight chapters deal with Samuel. So this is his call. Uh, and if you go read, uh, if, you, if you read through that, uh, the first two chapters really deal with Samuel's parents. And it is super duper similar to, uh, if you read the Genesis account of Abraham and Sarah, and what their dynamic was like, their relationships with the Lord, their relationships with each other, the struggle that it was until they finally were able to conceive Isaac. Uh, very similar to the story of Samuel. So Samuel is kind of an Isaac figure uh, that we kick off this book of Samuel with. So verse 10 of chapter 3, the Lord came and called as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel replied, yes, your servant is listening. So he's grown at this time. Chapter, uh, verse 19, I'm sorry. As Samuel grew up, the Lord was with him. Everything Samuel said was wise and helpful. That's a nice compliment. Verse 20, all the people of Israel from one end of the land to the other knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. So again, uh, you see his immediate obedience. You know, here I am, I'm ready. His immediate obedience to God's call is also reminiscent of the Genesis patriarchs and of Moses in the story of Exodus. While he knew of Yahweh, served him, uh, this marks Samuel's call to the prophetic office. Kickstarts our little story here in First and Second Samuel. Okay, so the Ark of the Covenant, which we referred to a little bit earlier, it is, it is essentially kind of a, a box that um, you put. The three things that were in it were. Uh, the Ten Commandments, so the, the law, the Mosaic law, were laid in there. Aaron, who was uh, Moses' brother, his staff, he, he served as kind of the first like priest figure. Um, his staff was in there. Uh, and then, uh, Kira, what was the third thing that was in there? Manna, boom. Manna that symbolized uh, God's provision for them in the wilderness. Who said that? Bonus points, brother. All right. So as God provided during the wilderness, as he was feeding his people. So, so those three things really symbolize, uh, you know, God's presence, his provision 
and those things. And so they would carry it around. They had it in the tabernacle. And so the Ark of the Covenant, uh, and that was the thing that, that as God was leading people through the, wiz, uh, the wilderness, that kind of symbolized the presence of God, that God is with us, that now we as believers now have the mind-blowing privilege that God's spirit is within us. We're really, we're God's temple and that we have um, God present, his Father, Son, and Spirit. And so as he indwells us now in those days, they thought of the Ark of the Covenant is that thing that kind of symbolized God, presence among them, indwelling them. So they have a little, uh, a little trouble with the Ark and treating it with its due respect. So chapter 4, verse 3, uh, there was a battle. Again, Israel is at war. Okay? The battle was over. The army of Israel retreated to their camp. Their leaders asked, why did the Lord allow us to be defeated by the Philistines. They said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant from the Lord and we'll carry it into battle with us and it will save our enemies. Okay, but the Philistines fought desperately and Israel was defeated again. The slaughter was great. 30,000 Israelite men died that day. The survivors turned and fled to their tents. The Ark of the Covenant was captured and Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were killed. That was a disaster, right? Not only did it not work as our little good luck charm, they straight up took it. And we don't even have it anymore. Okay? So what we see there, I mean, we laugh. It's like that phrase, you can't put God, hey, you don't want to put God in a box. Right? It's kind of like that. We sort of put God, what they were doing is really putting God in a box and treating him like this little kind of, yeah, God's with me and he's going to make everything go well. And, and, and really, Israelite treated the ark like a good luck charm. They did not have the, the awe and the reverence and the proper respect uh, of God and his holiness. They found out the hard way that God, he ain't honored in that, right? That's not how he operates. That's not, he's not going to bless us through that. So cool quote, the power of God was not and is not something that can be tamed or confined to a box. Israel couldn't and modern man certainly can't confine him to the churches they rarely care to frequent. So a little church burn there, but um, it's that idea. I mean, I did that forever. I, I thought of life in compartments, and this is my social area of my life. This is work. This is school. Whatever it was that was going on, and then, yeah, here's, here's faith over here as well. And so, God, I'm going to give you Sunday morning. I might even go to Bible study sometimes if I feel like bonus points for the week. But really, there's my spiritual life, and then there's like my real life. Uh, and in a sense, we're doing that. We're compartmentalizing our faith. We're putting God in a box. Uh, and God's not honored in that. And he calls us uh, to so much more than that. And we're leaving so many chips on the table if we treat him that way and we approach our faith in that way. So just a little caveat there. Samuel, Uncle Sam, okay? He is the man. He is the final judge. He is the first prophet, so as these prophets start popping up, really the ones that have books that were written uh, in their name, those are coming later. Those are coming, as I said, in the period of Second Kings. But God, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel um, operated as God's first real prophet as, as someone who's going around. And so as a part of that job, uh, he had an honor that he wasn't necessarily looking to have, but who God assigned this task to him. So the Uncle Sam wants he will make more sense in a second. All right, verse three, uh, then Samuel said to all the people in Israel, if you are really serious about wanting to return to the Lord, get rid of your foreign gods and the images of Ashtoreth, direct your heart to the Lord, serve him only, then he will rescue you 
from the Philistines. So that's kind of what the prophets did, right? And we talked about that earlier. There's an element of foretelling, like talking about the future, but really it's, it's foretelling. It's, hey, here, now, today, listen, guys, repent, turn, don't live like a fool, right? Trust God and his best for you. Verse 15, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. But he was also the last judge, remember? So you know how much fun it is to be a judge. Much like the other judges, he would eventually be reminded that um, he's in charge of a bunch of stubborn, really foolish people. So um, I was an Aggie. I went to A&M. Any other Aggies in here? There's some whoops. I love Aggies and how easy to manipulate we are to make noises such as that. Uh, but as I was there, I was there in 2005, 2009, suffering through incredibly mediocre football uh, leading up to that point. This was pre-Manziel SEC days. So it was very average at best. And so I joke, but it's, I swear it's true, that the most popular player on the A&M football team every year, you know who it was? The backup quarterback. The backup quarterback. Put him in. Because when he comes in, this starter stinks, right? I want the backup quarterback, and he's the one. Surely that's the problem. And what happens? You put the backup quarterback in, and we're still terrible because we did not have a good program at that time. But I read this passage, and it makes me think kind of of that mentality and how prone we are to do that. Oh, well, if we just changed that, or if this was different, then everything would be, everything would be better. And so uh, Samuel being a judge, comes to the people. They say, look, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Nice. <laughs> Give us a king like all the other nations have. Samuel was very upset with their request and went to the Lord for advice. Do as they say, the Lord replied. Uh, for it is me they are rejecting, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them from Egypt, they have continually forsaken me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. So do as they ask, but solemnly warn them how a king will treat them. He's referring there in Exodus 19, where God says, I have chosen you to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, where you're not going to be like all the other nations of the earth. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, and I'm a good God. And they reject that all the way up until where now they want a physical, literal king because they want to be like everybody else, right? We don't want to be special. We don't want to be set apart. We don't want you, God. We want to be like everybody else. So uh, chapter 8, verse 19, uh, Samuel goes, he says, you know what comes with a king, right? Like a bunch of other stuff. There's taxation. There's some military requirements. There's uh, land allotments like there's politics, like, I don't, I don't advise it. I don't recommend it. But verse 19, they refused to listen to Solomon's warning. Even so, I'm sorry, Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will govern us and lead us into battle. So Samuel told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord replied, do as they say, give them a king. Samuel agreed, sent the people home. So, um, well, never mind. Got to keep moving. We got 20 good minutes. All right, so God says, I got just the guy for you. If you want a king, Israel, just like all the other nations, 
All right, Kish was a rich, influential man from the tribe of Benjamin. His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. God says, Samuel, Israel's going to love that guy. Why don't you go? Why don't you go pursue that brother? So it goes up to Saul, uh, and Israel gets a ruler that fits the profile by all worldly standards. Uh, and we're going to see he will end up leading that way. So he anoints Saul. Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Uh, Sam says his farewell, uh, his farewell words. I'm going to skip that for the interest of time. But very similar to the guys who have gone before. Hey, turn to the Lord. Serve the Lord. His way is better. And then we see, uh, we see Saul. And honestly, if you go read the offenses that kind of trigger this, it seems pretty minor, especially we're about to talk about David's offense, uh, which was not minor. Saul's in comparison, it seems like the punishment here doesn't fit the crime. But, but the thing about uh, Saul's behavior is it's not just what you did was so awful and unforgivable that you're fired. It's you're consistently in the patterns of behavior uh, and the ways that you're going about ruling. You are proving uh, what I already knew to be true, which is that your heart is not after mine. Uh, you are not uh, humbly submitted to my will. Uh, you are not a true king of Israel. So um, how foolish Samuel exclaimed, you have not kept the command of the Lord. Uh, had, had you kept it, God would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom must end. And we know this verse, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commandments. So we know that little tagline, we know who he's talking about. He's talking about the shepherd boy. And so this passage, I'm going to skim over it, but it shows Samuel going and it's, wait, you mean that guy, right? It's like, no, the, the young one, the little one, the guy who's out in the field playing his harp. That's the guy who I want. And so verse seven, though, is worth reading. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't make decisions the way you do. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And guys, that is thematic throughout all of Scripture. Right? God's, uh, his economy, the way he works, it seems backwards. It seems counterintuitive. It seems just downright, like, unwise at times. Uh, but that's the way he works. And, uh, and the little tagline, heart and height, that was supposed to be like heart over height, not like heart leads to height. Um, if so, I don't have much heart because I'm not a very big guy. But God values heart over height. And that's how, he, uh, that's how he looks at a man. So when he looks at David, that's what he sees. And so to close out 1 Samuel, you've got a good 15 chapters. chapters and to skim it quickly, uh, says, you know, those chapters record the gradual transition of what we already read before, which was, uh, Saul, you ain't the man anymore. There's another guy who's coming up. Uh, transforming the nation as Israel and the Others increasingly realize that David is now God's true anointed king. So in six bullet points, Saul hires David as a musician. Right? Saul has this tormented spirit and uh, wants to hire a musician to soothe him. And who does he hire but the very guy who's going to replace him? I think God might be sovereign there. David becomes Saul's armor bearer. Right? Saul takes to David so much uh, so that he loves him. I want you to come with me and be like my number two guy out in battle which sets David up 
to go throw a rock at Goliath's said in chapter 17. And his fame continues to grow. Saul's son, Jonathan, becomes David's best friend. David marries one of Saul's daughters. And all along, it's like if you're a fly on the wall, it's like, this is going to get... This is going to be awkward for everybody real quick because this guy's coming for your job and you're not going to take it kindly. So Saul, over those chapters, will attempt to kill David approximately 16 different times. Everything from hunting him down with an army to chucking a spear at his head across the room. It's literally in the text. Uh, Whereas David will refuse to kill Saul in return, even to preserve his own life. He says, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Uh, You at one point anointed this man. So I'm not at peace with going and killing your anointed. And that's the way he phrases it. And there are two stories that you can read of in there where he clearly has an opportunity to do that. And he's able to prove to Saul. And one, he cuts a little piece off his cape where he's like, you were going to the bathroom in the cave and I was literally behind you and I could have stabbed you. And instead I cut this little piece of your robe off to show you, I'm not gonna kill you, man. Like you are the Lord's anointed and I have respect for that. And I'm gonna trust the Lord in his time to make that passage. So 1 Samuel, fantastic book. I do recommend uh, reading that if you pick a random Old Testament book to go, to go read through. And now you know in the grand scheme of the narrative kind of where we are. The kingdom is starting after the judges. So Samuel, Saul, and then Saul and David. And it's the fourth quarter, friends. Okay, 2 Samuel, the book about all about King David. So he was a boy in 1 Samuel. He got anointed He's working his way up the chain. And then finally, 2 Samuel kicks off and he is the man. So we got the short outline that's split up like this. It's all about David. And it says, uh, David's triumphs for 10 chapter, life is good. And then David's transgressions in chapter 11, bad, bad, bad. David's troubles from that point forward, things change. He is still a man after God's own heart, as we will see and somehow rectify that, even though it seems like that can't be. Uh, but life changes. I mean, sin has consequences, ugly consequences in life. Uh, and that's the way it goes. So I always find it weird that it's like, why didn't they just call this book David? Because it's all about David. But I got the same Bible you got now. We got to roll with the punches, people. All right. I, I think of it too as uh, David was the second king that Saul anointed. So the second guy, Samuel God, I keep mis- mixing up this name. The second guy Samuel anointed was David. So that's how you can kind of remember it in your head uh, as the second Samuel is all about David. So same background. Uh, the purpose was to record the history of David's reign and to foreshadow Christ, who will be the ideal leader of the new and perfect kingdom. Themes, unique features. Um, the Davidic covenant, we'll spend some time talking about that. Christ in Second Samuel We'll read about Mephibosheth, who has one of the most frustrating names in the Old Testament, but who has one of the coolest illustrations in the Old Testament. Uh, David, house, kingdom, throne. Key chapter is chapter 7. That's where the Davidic covenant is found. So the Abrahamic covenant from Genesis 12 was a big deal. Davidic covenant with David is 2 Samuel chapter 7. So it starts off with this power shift. I'll just kind of summarize this. It's kind of like civil war. Right? Saul still has some faithful people that are like, but Saul was the king and I was important in that regime. So I'm kind of feeling like I should be in charge now. And David has this other camp that recognizes he's the true Lord's anointed. So that gets worked out for a few chapters. And then finally, 2 Samuel 5. This is where we see uh, that David was the right choice, man. And we're going to see, we're going to recall 1 Samuel 13, 14, 
which said that David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, because before, before we get to his big boo-boo in chapter 11, we're going to see how this can still be true of him. And so, uh, verses 1 and 2, All the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron uh, and told him, We are members of your family. For a long time, even while Saul was our king, technically, you were the one who really led Israel. And the Lord has told you, you will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. You will be their leader. The reward, and this is the takeaway for me, is that the reward for faithfulness is more opportunities for faithfulness. So man, I saw you out there in the field. uh, And that was not a sexy job, right? But you were doing it faithfully and with excellence. And so those are the people, even in the church today, uh, you don't have to be in whatever position you think is like actually being pastoral. It's, I got you right where you are. And I'm just looking for you to be faithful with what you got and what you're doing. And uh, the reward oftentimes for faithfulness is more opportunities for faithfulness. Uh, That expands later, verses 10, 12, and 19. This is still in chapter 5. David became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And David realized the Lord made him king over Israel and made his kingdom great for the sake of his people, Israel. So David asked the Lord and once again asked the Lord what to do. So 19 and 23, that's showing, hey, even though I'm the man, even though the kingdom is mine, I recognize that it's all from God and it's all for God. So I'm still going to be abiding with him and I'm still going to be coming humbly before him and seeking his wisdom and seeking his face on a daily basis. So I wrote, David David knew he was a sailboat, not a ski boat. That's just an analogy for me that when I think of sailing versus like doing water skiing is uh, in the ski boat, you're kind of man in the wheel, right? And you can gun it and break it and you're very much in control of what that boat is doing. Whereas in a sailboat, I mean, there's responsibilities that go with being a wise sailor and knowing what to do and how to navigate and how to sail. But ultimately, you're dependent upon the wind, right? You're not going anywhere if the wind's not blowing. And even if it is blowing, you got to know how to let it fill your sails and let it skillfully um, guide you where you want to go. So David knew he was a sailboat, not a ski boat. Uh, At no point did he operate under the illusion of self-control, which is huge. He knew that his role as king was from God and for God, so he acted as a wise steward who continued to seek the will of the Lord. God doesn't reward us, he entrusts us with more, which is kind of that idea of the faithfulness, right? Uh, The reward for faithfulness is more opportunities for faithfulness, and that's not him like rewarding us for being good. That's just him saying, hey, if you're faithful with that, like, that's the kind of man, that's the kind of woman I want to entrust with more responsibility uh, as much as you can handle for my kingdom. And so there's a, a degree of faithfulness and a degree of humility that comes with those things. So the Davidic covenant is an outgrowth of the Abrahamic covenant. So think ACDC, right? Some classic rock. Okay, so there was the Abrahamic covenant and then the Davidic covenant. They're not separate. They're very much related. Uh, the, the, Abrahamic, the Davidic covenant, I'm sorry, deals with Abraham's descendants primarily and God's provision of leadership for them specifically. So the key thing to know about the Davidic covenant is that God's covenant with David becomes the source of messianic hope as it develops as the message of the prophets and the psalmists. So when Blake picks that up next week and you see that uh, as you close out the Old Testament, there, there comes this, there's this sense of hope. Like we have a savior, a redeemer 
coming, that comes from 2 Samuel 7. That is the Israelites of that day saying, we remember, just like we remember God's promise to Abraham, we remember his promise to David. And we know that someone is coming for us. He certainly doesn't fit the profile, right? As the Jews, when Jesus finally does put on flesh and comes, it's not quite the Messiah they were expecting, but nonetheless, uh, the ACDC points to JC. So, 2 Samuel J, uh, 7, when your days are fulfilled, and here, here's the text, here's, here's the crux of the, <clears throat> of the Davidic covenant. When your days are fulfilled, I'll just go to verse 16 at the bottom. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So skip ahead to the New Testament as the ACDC leads to JC. This is from Luke 1. So this is the gospel of Luke at the beginning. And this is an angel coming to talk to Mary. Do not be afraid for you found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your room and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. So if there's any doubt, that Jesus did not fulfill the Davidic covenant. There you have it. It also foretelled in, in uh, Book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, five five. One of the elders said, "Stop weeping! Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome." So is the book and its seven seals. So this is the guy. Verse twenty two. I, Jesus. In case you're still wondering have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So pretty cool to see New Testament. It's the Old Testament revealed. We knew he was coming and now we know who he is. Okay, Mephibosheth. Okay, this was, this is out, out of, uh, this is kind of backtracking to chapter four, but this just tells you who he is. Saul's son, Jonathan, who I, if you remember from first Samuel, uh, Jonathan was David's boy, his best friend. It also happened to be Saul's son. So he was kind of awkwardly caught in the middle. So Saul's son, Jonathan, had a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when Saul and Jonathan were killed at the battle of Jezreel, uh, which was in 1 Samuel 31, when they both passed away. And David actually mourns them, mourns their death. When news of the battle reached the capital, the child's nurse grabbed him and fled, but she fell and dropped him as she was running. He became crippled as a result. So then we pick it up in verse 9, or chapter 9, I'm sorry. And so the same character reintroduces himself. Hey, his name is Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. When he came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. But David said, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind to you because of my vow to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here with me at the palace. Mephibosheth Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such kindness to a dead dog like me? He exclaimed. Verse 11, and from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. So tying it together, love this quote based on that story. The sensitive reader will observe many parallels between Mephibosheth and his or herself. 
Mephibosheth was fallen and fearful of the king. David took the initiative to seek him out in spite of his unloveliness, bring him into his house in presence, and adopt him as his own son. He also shared his bounty and fellowship with this undeserving one for the rest of his life because of Jonathan, just as God has done for us for the sake of Jesus. So this passage is perhaps the most Christ-like. The Old Testament is just the New Testament concealed, right? We see the heart of Christ. We see grace in this exchange between David and between Mephibosheth. And we all have a little bit of that in our story. And that's the beauty of the gospel, friends. Okay, so closing it out in these last five minutes. Uh, David makes a mistake. Okay, David's transgression in chapter 11. We all know the story of Bathsheba. Um, what I would point out is that there is a, there's a DNA to the way that played out that is still totally happens today. And it's that he saw something, then he desired or coveted it, then he took it, and then what did he do? Instead of bringing it to light, he hid it, right? And he compounds his sin rather than confessing his sin. All right, James 1 says it this way, temptation comes from the lure of our own evil desires. These evil desires lead to evil actions, and evil actions lead to death. Okay, so David decides, uh, I think the text it says, in the spring when kings go out to war, King David stayed behind. And he chose to stay behind. What do you do? You get idle, you get lazy, you get into trouble. And so he was setting himself up for failure in that regard. And it's such a familiar pattern of falling into sin. And here's what I love in chapter 12, is that you got this guy, Nathan, who was also a prophet. Uh, And he respected, he admired David, but he was not so impressed with David uh, that he knew he couldn't approach him and speak truth to him. So he tells him the story, uh, which is just like, he retells exactly what David did, but switches the names out. And David's like, oh, as surely as the Lord lives, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. Then Nathan said, you're that man, bro, right? Not you're the man, you're not the man. You're that man, like in the story. And he realizes all in that moment, it's like, man, I've been hiding this. I've choked this down. I thought nobody knew, uh, why then have you despised the word of God, done this horrible deed, for you have murdered Uriah and stolen his wife? Here's the truth, guys. is um, Every man and every woman needs a Nathan in their life. They need someone who has uh, the license to wield the knife when it needs to be wielded, to tell you the truth when it's not the enjoyable thing uh, to hear, um, and to call you out when you need to be called out. Because we are prone, prone, prone to wander. Right? And then left on our own outside of community, God gives us three main gifts. He gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us his people. And if we are isolating, Proverbs 18.1 says, um, whoever isolates himself seeks after his own desires and he quarrels against all sound wisdom. And that's you and that's me. So uh, if you don't have a Nathan in your life, if you don't have people around you uh, that you've given permission to ask you pointed questions, and to speak in uh, to your life and potential sin in your life. I mean, the dirty little secret is everybody that comes to church is still sinful. Like, we still sin hourly. Uh, We still have those hearts within us. Uh, Church is not the place you come when you're all cleaned up. It's not the place you come after you fix your behavior. It's the place you come to get to know Jesus so that his spirit can be within you and that your behavior uh, will naturally change itself as a result of knowing him, right? Right? 
He doesn't accept us because we improve or because we stop doing this and start doing that. Um, We stop doing this and start doing that because we see there's no life in it. And because we know more of his character and who he is, that that is what we're drawn to. Uh, David's repentance. Guys, this is what, and then we're going to close because we're out of time, but this is what makes David David. And this is what makes him a man after his own heart is even to mess up uh, to the unspeakable degree. I mean, the sins he's logging in there, adultery, murder, uh, most of us are not going to get to that level. So if we're just doing the compare game, it's like David was way worse than me. Uh, So I don't know how he can be a man after God's own heart. And this is why. And we'll, we'll, close with this. Uh, This is the posture of a humble heart who is aware uh, of the position he's in, that he's a sinner uh, in need of a savior. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. I know that's true of some of us in this room right now. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart, so you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me my, back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Last slide. Do not banish me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me again the joy of your salvation. Make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to sinners and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God, who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Verse 17, take it home. The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit, a broken and repentant heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's not to say God takes joy from when we're brokenhearted and we're bottoming out and hitting rock bottom. Uh, That's just to show that a lot of times that's what it takes, guys. Um, I do college ministry, and I'm telling you, a lot of those kids have not hit rock bottom yet. They have not figured out uh, that there's no life in the things they're trying to find life in. And there's going to come a time when they do. And uh, Lord willing, they'll figure it out. And, and what Lord looks, the, Lord, the Lord looks for in those times uh, is not looking for you to feel guilt. It's not feeling, uh, for you to feel condemnation. Uh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Condemnation is not of the Lord. I don't care what you've done. Condemnation is not of the Lord. Conviction is from the Lord. And he gives us his spirit to convict us and point us back to truth in addition to his people, in addition to his word. Uh, So we can take that to the bank. Uh, But David recognizes his sin, like all sin, was primarily against the Lord, not just Bathsheba and Uriah. His response, a broken, repented heart, is perhaps the clearest uh, indication of how David was different than Saul. The way they responded to their sin, right? Saul didn't, His offense was way minor compared to that. But his response, it was night and day. There was no humility uh, before him. Uh, Submission to the Lord God. So the way the rest of that book plays out is you just see consequences. Uh, And this is what you got to know is that confession and forgiveness, though good and necessary, 
in no way stops the harvest, right? You reap what you sow. Uh, Grace does not mean sin's consequences are removed. It means that God gives you the strength to endure them and obey even in their midst. Uh, So sin has consequences. It always will. It always has. You look at evil and suffering in the world, the number one apologetic that people ask, if God is still in charge, if he's good and he's sovereign, why is there so much evil in the world? And the truth is, friends, he gave us a free will, right? So he made sin possible. We make sin actual by choosing, as we've seen from the very uplifting books of Judges and of those sorts, and just watching the Israelites through the, old, old, through the whole Old Testament. The reason we see sin and evil and suffering and wickedness in the world is not because God is abs- absent. It's not because God is powerless. Uh, it is because sin has devastating consequences uh, upon the world and upon our lives. Uh, but we have a good God who is gracious, who uh, has done all the work that it takes through Jesus to reconcile ourselves to him who is in control uh, and that our hope can be in him, that one day he will, in that sense, make all things new and again. Uh, but in the meantime, we can trust in him. We can hope in him. So again, David's triumphs, his transgressions, his troubles. Uh, congratulations. You guys have finished seven Old Testament periods and seven primary historical books of the Bible. Uh, Blake's going to carry you guys through the exile, the return, and the years of silence. He's going to hit on the the different prophets and the message of those guys. Uh, And this time next week, y'all will be Old Testament scholars. So um, glad y'all could make it. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Sorry I took five extra minutes of your night. Um, Before we scuttle off, let me pray for us and we'll be on the move. Um, Lord, thanks for this time. God, pray that evermore uh, your word would be impressed upon our hearts, uh, that we would devote daily to you uh, and open it in the scriptures and seeing what you have for us. Uh, pray that that hunger would grow and uh, just that our view of you and uh, our love for you uh, would grow along with it. So thanks for tonight. Thanks for this time. Thanks for my friends. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a good night.